This is Open Encounters. Hear the voices of the people who have crossed the Mediterranean Sea. Now they're on their next journey of settling their lives in Italy and beyond. Their voices on Open Encounters from migrants of the Mediterranean. How long does it take you to retrieve everybody? I can only answer too long. Like, there's if there's 50 people on the water and, and, and you're the only ship there, not everybody is going to make it. That's, that's, you know, that's a fact. Hello and welcome to Open Encounters. I'm Pamela Kirby, as you know me. I'm joined today with a special guest who's also on the Migrants of the Mediterranean team, Nick O'Connell. Say hi, Nick. Hi, Pamela. It's great to be here. Glad to finally have you uh, on on the record here. We hear your name in the credits, but this is your first time actually speaking with us, and I'm really glad to have uh, another team member actually uh, be, uh, be, be visible to the rest of our listeners here, or audible, I should say. Yeah, likewise. I'm <laughs> very excited to be here with you. So we're here today to introduce a sea rescuer who is with the Juventa, a German rescue operation, uh, that ran from 2016 to 2017 before that ship was impounded uh, by authorities in Italy in Trapani. Uh, his name is Miguel Duarte, and um, he ran about four missions with the Juventa. And Nick, I'm bringing you into this conversation specifically because you have done some thinking and some work around more of the tactical, political issues that are on the ground in Libya and uh, its relationship to Italy and the EU. Um, so when I spoke to Miguel in this conversation, which you guys will hear shortly, he described a lot of really tough things. The things that strike me the most are the reality of being out at sea, how long a mission actually is. It can be up to two or three weeks out at sea before you come to port. Um, and when you do, you may have hundreds of people um, that you've pulled out of the sea to bring back with you. So it's a uh, emotionally demanding work to do and physically demanding, obviously, too, to be out there. Um, and it's also a unique case, uh, perhaps amplified even more, because Miguel, also like Francesco, also like anybody who's worked on these youth sea rescue operations, are all college students or of that age who don't have a background in see, in see anything. Uh, what they did was step up to a role, um, seeing a humanitarian need and not seeing anybody step up to do it, did it themselves. And they were young when they did this. They took a risk uh, in their own, with their own safety to make, to make this happen, but they were called upon. They felt called upon and stepped up and saved literally thousands of lives. So that is Miguel Duarte, who's, uh, whose story you'll hear more of in the conversation I have with him. Um, I just want to give the listeners a few statistics on just what those numbers are and what, and what it, uh, the volume you can expect uh, in that 2016-2017 period when there were so many arrivals coming across Libya to Sicily. Um, you know, uh, he, he said that the the Juventa was built to host around 100 to 120 people safely on deck, um, but at times there were up to 500 people on board. 
So this is how many people were, were out there and that of all of the sea rescue operations on the Mediterranean at that time, just them alone had, you know, their overcapacity by five times. On his first mission, that was he was out for three weeks. Um, by the end, they had rescued more than 400 people. He was first a translator and then a contact person. The contact person is a really unique role because they're the first person who's going out to the distressed uh, boat to start pulling pulling people back onto his speedboat and bring them onto onto deck. You really touch on some important points, I think, especially pointing to the fact that the, these are not professional sea people. These right. are not people that are uh, trying to make a career out of this. Um, right. It's not an economically viable career, also because I would say that probably a great majority of them actually are all volunteers. It's quite important to understand the reality of these rescue operations mm -hmm. because we always hear a lot, a lot of uh, demonizing and weaponizing these nonprofits that are at sea, and without knowing the reality of what the situation is out there at sea, it's yeah. it's hard to to take their side. Yeah. Or because all we hear is how it's all programmed, how they are doing it on purpose, um, or they are out there to, um, you know, putting other people's lives before ours uh, intended as European citizens mm -hmm. when them being out there truly and as you mentioned is a testament just to the fact that we have failed policies that um, make their operations a necessity to save lives at sea that right. um, that by the way you know a lot of times we hear um, the argument that these operations act as poll factors or mm -hmm. at least we used to hear this in 2017 a lot um, when a lot of organizations and a lot of uh, important institutions uh, like one of the major universities in London have proven over and over that uh, these nonprofit ships do not act as, as poll factors, uh, right. meaning that, you know, migrants are not crossing the Mediterranean in greater numbers because they know that there's nonprofit ships. Exactly. Uh, oftentimes, the migrants that are making the journey have absolutely no knowledge of, of anything that's happening. Um, it's just proven so many times. It has been proven so many times that the poll factor that we often hear about is this is just a myth to try to explain in very easy terms what's happening right and you know there's one thing another stat that really struck me when i was listening to miguel speak too was that mission right before they got to trapani where their boat was impounded by the authorities in a two-week period leading up to that they had rescued 37 3700 people in two weeks so my first question is what would have become of these people if the Juventa and other ships weren't there? We can speculate, but it's safe to say that they wouldn't be they wouldn't be with us today. I think of the enormous pressure that's on these people to perform, to save lives when this is a political problem vastly larger than themselves. And they are ostensibly tasked with filling a gap that the European Union has stepped away from. Now we, we also have Nick here because coming up, he's going to be uh, publishing an article for us talking more about um, these Libya relations. And Nick, could you give us a few insights on what you're going to be talking about to help orient people of just the, again, an enormous scope of the issue in the Mediterranean that these sea rescue operations have been tasked with when nobody else will do it? Yeah, absolutely. And I will just start by mentioning, you know, picking off what you just um, ended on um, regarding the 3,700 uh, people at sea back when the Juventa was operating. Um, I think it's very important to 
acknowledge and remember that this is not something that was happening in the past. This is not something that happened in 2016 and 20, 2017. Uh, this is a situation that hasn't really changed much, if not for the worse, um, uh, right now, you know, every day in 2021. And back then when the... Um, and by the that you mean off, the numbers are up. Numbers are, are going, yeah, numbers are going up again. Um, and back then when the Juventus was operating, it was right after Mare Nostrum um, was ended, which was a European operation to search and rescue using government ships, so military vessels. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had just ended, but at the same time, um, kind of to fill that gap that was left by Mare Nostrum, for the time being, the European Union had uh, put forward the uh, Frontex ships to do the search and rescue operation. So mm-hmm. Frontex is the European Agency for Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. So at that time, you know, if the and non-profit ships hadn't been there, probably some other military vessel uh, could have saved them at that time. Um, right now, if they're not saved by a non-profit ship, the only other option is a commercial vessel. Um, As and you we've saw been seeing this more tankers. and more in, in the past few months. Um, all that to say that it's really up to nonprofit operations and commercial vessels that are passing by. Mm. There is absolutely no uh, government or European-wide program that is out there saving these lives. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the third component that, uh, quote-unquote, can save uh, folks at sea is the Libyan Coast Guard, which is more and more powerful now because of the funding that they are constantly receiving by governments like Italy's, but who is actually not really saving people at sea. They're just blocking them before they can reach international waters, and they're just bringing them back. Yeah, um, intercepting to shore. them, bringing them and back. And so this to kind shore. of leads into the question that you initially asked about uh, Europe-Libya relations. Um, it's a very rocky relationship in a lot of ways mm-hmm. that is uh, very short-sighted. There seems to lack a political will to find a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people don't realize that Libya used to be an arrival point for a lot of migrants. The migration flow that we're seeing from other parts of Africa and the Middle East are, are nothing new. They're it's, it's not something that's only happening, ha- has been happening in the past three years. Um, it's something that's been going for a, for a very long time, decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at one point, Libya was a destination point. Mm-hmm. Um, the country has been engulfing a decade-long civil war, mm-hmm. um, decade-long violence, and over a year and a half of civil war. And so the country in itself is not a destination anymore. It's just a passing point. Right. And it really, has, it really has become a, a, a country where... Uh, traffickers have flourished um, just because there really isn't a strong rule of law. And we're just seeing right now something very interesting happening in the country where for the first time there seems to have been an agreement among a lot of factions across the country to this try is and... the unity government that we've been seeing in the news. Yeah, trying to form a, an interim government that could prepare the country for elections in December. And if um, that falls into place, Nick, um, yeah. this, uh, you know, because one of the issues that exists in, in Sea Rescue is that, well, look, uh, they need to go back to their closest port. That would be Tripoli's. However, international uh, law says that, that people cannot be returned to conflict zones. So as long as Libya, then with this unity government, becomes deemed something other than that, something peaceful, uh, people can, with this Libyan Coast Guard, be returned again, um, and we can pretend that it's a safe place for them when perhaps it is not. That absolutely, and that is something that um, the the idea of be, of Libya being a safe port is something that is still argued by European governments. Um, 
it was still argued during the Civil War. Um, so the the idea that migrants should not be returned to Lib- Libya is not only you know a, a humanitarian type of argument. It's it's truly a legal uh, argument. I mean, mm-hmm. international maritime law is is pretty clear about the need of a safe harbor and. Us as migrants of the Mediterranean, but also together with so many other organizations and even government organizations, um, for the past five years we've been reporting on the human right abuses mm-hmm. that the migrants have are returned to once they're saved by the Coast Guard. Right. Um, because once one of these vessels is is saved by the Libyan Coast Guard, they're returned to Libya, and they usually end up in a detention center where um, there's usually a local militia running mm-hmm. the show and. It goes from human right abuses, like torture, uh, you know, rapes. And um, right, exactly. Uh, all of the things that are documented in the stories that we have on, on the site at Migrants of the Mediterranean. And, absolutely. And also what the guys will say about their choice to cross the sea when they did is that the prospect of dying in the sea was a bad one, but they would prefer it rather than staying in Libya where they will die a thousand deaths every day yeah. with the torture that they suffer. So yeah. this is what's at stake for the human beings um, that we profile and um, for those who uh, we have not yet met because they've been returned to a conflict zone. Nick, we'll look forward to your article on the Beyond blog um, that's coming up. We'll make sure for the listeners so they can find it easily. You can just go to the site www.migrantsofthemed.com and click at the top where it says The Beyond. That's our blog, and you'll find Nick's story there. I'll also, when it's live, make sure I put it right there at the top of the homepage so it's even easier for you to find. Um, and then lastly, just um, to give a quick shout out to the work that we're doing here, we thrive on donations. So if you are a listener of this podcast and you like it, please throw a couple bucks at us. Um, we want to make sure that we can bring you more content like this. So. If you love this podcast, if you love the content we put up, please uh, donate. There's a donate button on the site. Again, the web address is migrantsofthemed.com and just click the donate button and it will take you from there. Nick, thank you so much again for joining us for this intro and for those insights. Absolutely. Absolutely, Pamela. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll look forward to having you uh, on another one again. Um, And for the listeners, here we go. This is um, our conversation with Miguel Duarte, who is a former ship member, crew member at the Juventa. topic about entire families of of migrants and refugees trying to cross the sea mm-hmm. uh, from from Turkey to Greece or mm-hmm. from Libya to Italy mm-hmm. to escape uh, to escape all, all sorts of uh, kinds of violence uh, at that point the war in Syria was was already going on the war the civil war in Libya was already going on as well mm-hmm. um, so the news were were flooded with this with this kind of images of mm-hmm. people suffering basically on both kinds of on both sides of the border, and yeah. back then I was I was studying and I kind of felt like watching the news and sitting on my couch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I couldn't help but think that um, what was happening kind of gave me some responsibility you know Mm -hmm. it was my responsibility as well because what i felt was that 
the the uh, what the European states were doing mm-hmm. did not represent what I believe should be done. Right. Um, so 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 I felt like I felt like you know me a middle class Portuguese person never had you know serious problems in in my life don't have a family to 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 take care of mm-hmm. I, I felt like you know of, of, of all groups of people I should be at least I should contribute at least uh, uh, to the extent of my possibilities to 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 the to you know to, to improve the situation of these people yeah so back then I, I, I had no idea what was what I could do because I, I, I study physics and math <laughs> so it, it really doesn't you know That's it's completely unrelated <laughs> I feel you but, uh, yeah. That's how it is on this side too. I, you know what I think? Actually, most people who get into anything related to sea rescue and migration um, from this humanitarian side often have no connection to it. I'm thinking also of like the the pilot initiatives. So many of those people just took their took their savings and bought a plane to start doing spotting missions. And it's no different here at Migrants of the Mediterranean, and obviously no different for you too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, and and the you know even just the fact that that it's us complete amateurs mm-hmm. having to do this kind of job, which is quite a technical job, yeah. search and rescue, um, kind of kind of you know kind of signals that something wrong is happening, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if, right? if the professionals are not there, if the means are not there, if the money is not there, then then it has to be amateur civil society people who who uh, you know had to. To, to learn while doing it yeah uh, you know and that's a great insight um, yeah it's uh, it's it, it kind of struck me like back then um search civil search and rescue was not was not a very uh, known thing here in europe mm-hmm. and uh I, I found out about this this organization that had just started operating in the in the central mediterranean mm-hmm. um and they i mean they, they had basically this old fishing ship that they adapted to to serve the purpose of, of uh, sea rescue and this is uh, the Jugendrettet Juventus ship yeah that's that's the name of the of the of the organization Jugendrettet and then the, the ship is called the Juventa they like w- when i when i found out about them they had they had been you know they, they had gone out only like a week before ah. so they they had one week in operation and they had already participated in the rescue of, of more than a thousand people no kidding yeah really this i mean this this is this is ridiculous right yeah. <laughs> first of all uh how is it possible that you know 15 amateurs really uh, participate in the rescue of, of, of a thousand people you My know God. with no help from any state or whatever so i felt two things back then i felt uh, first of all uh this is very wrong that that this is needed uh second of all i need to be part of this mm-hmm. like i need to to help somehow you know even if it's just you know carrying out the trash i'll do that I, I need to do something for yeah. these people because what they what they're doing is, is very very important incredible um, and, and so I, guess I was lucky because when i yeah no go ahead go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I, I guess i was lucky back then because i i just contacted them i said exactly that like i want to help you somehow and, and back then they were looking for crew and and they invited me to 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 join one of their missions and what was your uh, role aboard the ship what was your title my, my i guess my role kept changing as i did <laughs> as i did different missions like my, my, my first mission I, I guess i was invited because i speak italian and, and some french okay. and that's important to 
to speak to the people we i mean italian is important because we we have to be in constant uh, contact with the italian authorities mm -hmm. and french is important because because a lot of a lot of people come from uh, african french speaking countries Correct, right? yeah but then you know once you're on board you you get to learn a lot of things and uh and once i did my first mission i i didn't want to to you know Basically, that that the mission was like three weeks, and I, uh, by the end of the mission, we had rescued more than 400 people. Oh my gosh! Now, and uh, and I felt like you know that's probably the the most uh, you know the most useful three weeks in my my entire wow. life. So I want to keep doing this. Wow! But now hold on a second. So this is your first time. Is this your first time out at sea? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, back in 2016. Yeah. <laughs> what was that adjustment like? What's it like to be on board a ship, especially when you've never done sea rescue before, and now you're thrust out into the center of the Mediterranean for three weeks? Yeah, I mean, there's there's only so much you can do to prepare for something like <laughs> this, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, I didn't know anyone who had ever been through anything, you know, even close to this. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of hard to to yeah to get to prepare right yeah so uh but I, I i mean it was scary for sure but also you know the the excitement of of mm. uh of being uh part of something that's that's so important kind of kind of you know uh yeah. It was it kind of it kind of outgrew the yeah. the, the fear of, of being out there, right? Yeah, the excitement I thought uh, always kind of takes the know, edge yeah. off the fear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The th then it's it's kind of uh, it's uncomfortable. Like being on a ship is uncomfortable mm -hmm. in general. Like everything is metal, right? Everything <laughs> is hard and cold and <laughs> and smelly and, and all not that. Not really home, sweet um, home. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> you, you know, even taking a shower is a is a is a difficult uh, task. Oh my god! Uh, because everything is constantly moving from side to side, right? Um, so no baths. Uh, no, no, not at all. But then, but then, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's just you're constantly in your, in my first mission. I was I was you know constantly paying attention to everything because every basically everything was new to me mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. uh, we did have people who knew what they were doing of course right we we, we had we had a, a professional captain we had a doctor and a nurse on board because mm -hmm. we had this little hospital mm. for uh for the people we rescued and and we had some other uh some other roles that needed to be played by by professionals naturally mm -hmm. right and then yeah i, I mean i remember I remember my my first rescue uh, as if it was yesterday. It was it was really? uh, certainly one of the most intense experiences in my life. How long were you out at sea before you got your first distress call? I just I think it was it was right in the beginning of the mission that we mm -hmm. that we got our first distress call. For, so maybe not the first day, but certainly like the second or third wow. day we got the. So so what we do is. We're we're in Malta. This this okay. uh, uh, because that's you know the, the the closest island to the what what we call the the search and rescue zone, mm -hmm. um, which is international waters off the coast of Libya, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 we we you know we sail when we're ready we sail to the to the to this uh, to this area, mm -hmm. uh, which takes more or less twenty four hours. And then once once we're there, we we just patrol the 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 whole area, 
uh, and we wait for a distress call. We wait for, okay. for the Italian authorities in so general. I mean, it, it is possible to spot uh, a boat, but the, the Libyan coast is so long mm-hmm. that, you know, it's may, way more likely that a, that a plane or a, or a big ship or, or a helicopter spots them first, Got contacts it. the Italian authorities, and then they contact us. So like. the deal is, is that, there, because there are two different types of ships that go out. There are those that operate in the SAR zone, and then there are those that are actually just there to help transport passengers f- after that. Isn't that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that the the distinction is not very clear mm-hmm. because also, you know, any ship could could uh, could come across uh, a boat full of people, and mm-hmm. they have to be prepared to rescue, and they do, right? Right. But I, I guess Basic back then th- there were ships that were yeah. Back then there were ships that were faster. Ours was one of those, I, I suppose, because we were small and we were prepared for for uh, you know for just a fast reaction to 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 get everybody safely on board mm-hmm. but then as the ship was was small we weren't prepared to to take the people for one or two days to the mm-hmm. to the italian coast right to the mm-hmm. italian port so mm-hmm. uh so uh, then bigger ships came into uh into the scene usually either bigger bigger ngos like doctors without borders mm-hmm. or uh more mm-hmm. frequently Coast Guard ship, for example, Italian yeah. Coast Guard or, or the Italian Navy yeah. would pick the people up over, still in international waters and they would, uh, they would bring them to land, basically. Yeah, right. And does uh, did the Juventa ever uh, dock uh, with passengers itself or was it always uh, transferred to the Guardia Costiera or the Navy before um, going back out to sea? There were there were very very few times in mm-hmm. which we had to actually go to to um, to Italy to mm-hmm. uh, to disembark, mm-hmm. and those times they only happened because the the Italian authorities told us that they had no chance to to uh, to send a ship, mm-hmm. and and they basically forced us to 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 go to Italy because ideally we would never uh, set foot in Italy really because our ship was not equipped to uh, transport a lot of people uh, for that long a distance Got you know it. we didn't even have enough food for 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 you know for so many people also our ship was built to keep uh, around 100 120 people safely mm-hmm. on the deck while uh, you know many boats carried a lot more people than that right, right so right. it's it wasn't it wasn't a safe uh, mm-hmm. thing to do and there were times uh, it, it happened very rarely uh, and it's really dangerous but it, there were times in which we had to 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 have up to 500 people on board wow uh, 500 on board and, and that yeah it happened it happened a couple of times it's it's really not ideal it's mm-hmm. it's uh, I mean in most situations it's out of the question because sure. it's, it really puts uh, the crew members in danger, right? Right. But yeah, but but then what do you do, right? If you have you know four rubber boats, 150 people on each, uh, and you know two of them are sinking, what what do you do, right? You you have to get the people on board uh, as quickly as possible. You need you need it's it's the it's the safest bet for the for the the largest amount of people, right? So yeah, yeah sometimes we had to do that, but it's it's really like mm-hmm. last resort, of course. Yeah, I mean, it, I was saying it was the same thing on on land too. I remember it was um, Easter weekend in 2017, that April 2017, 
And yeah. I don't know if you remember, were you out at sea on mission that weekend? Uh, no, no, I wasn't. I wasn't in the mission before okay. the event, and then I was in some missions afterwards. Okay. It was just... But well, I, heard the, I heard the tales. Yeah, I mean, it was just one of those, it was yeah. like this infamous weekend where there was just, um, you know, thousands upon thousands of people crossing the channel. And uh, on Lampedusa, there were, you know, the center at the time was uh, slated to hold somewhere around like 300, 350 people, something like that. And that weekend, yeah. there were over a thousand. So it was, um, and it's just, but it's, so it's the same situation. What do you do? I mean, <laughs> a, a boat comes to port, they have to go somewhere. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, it's a lot yeah. of just um, improvising, as always. Um, so what was your role? Uh, talk about some of your different roles that you had. You said you started out kind of... Uh, doing one thing what was that as you were absorbing all of the rules and uh yeah yeah so so in the beginning i was i was doing you know translation or okay, talking yeah. to italian authorities mm -hmm. and then you know i started learning uh you know how to help on deck basically we had we had a crane to to um put the, the the speedboat that we have on board uh, uh on the sea and, and the other way around so mm -hmm. uh, there, there was a lot of machinery and stuff that we had to operate uh for which you know just another an extra pair of hands was always needed okay. so I, I started learning uh, that kind of thing and then uh, as i did more missions through 2017 i i started uh, working as what we call a, a contact person mm -hmm. the contact person is is the person who goes on on one of the speedboats and does the the first contact with the people when we find them so um so the, the basically the, the speedboat is a lot faster than the ship naturally yeah. and we we put like two or three people on on those on those speedboats mm -hmm. uh with say 100 or 150 life vests okay so that we can react really really quickly so we we find a, a distress situation we we assess the 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 situation we see you know assess the condition of the boats uh, see if there's people uh unconscious people or people on the water or, or stuff like that and the mm -hmm. contact person is the person who establishes contact first right so we'll, you we'll are explain the to the people what's gonna you're yeah. on the front line then when you get a distress call. The, the, the speedboat goes down. You have the speedboat that's full of the, the life jackets. Um, you distribute yeah. you first. You're putting out those calls. As the guys always t talk to me about it, when they tell me when the rescue boats arrive, it's a lot of announcing to don't panic, stay calm, um, and everybody yeah, is just yeah. doing their best to, to, I think, follow direction when they don't understand yet. What's it like from your perspective seeing that? Yeah, it's, it's like... Uh it's, it's, it's a difficult job, really, at an emotional level, mm -hmm. I, I'd say, because um, you kind of have to, to be uh, very, very assertive, almost mean, you know, you have to shout with the people because th there's, you, you have to shout at people because you, you don't, like, there cannot be any risk of anybody doing anything that you mm -hmm. didn't tell them to do because it's so, so dangerous mm -hmm. at that point. Like, just to, to, to give you a, an, an idea of how... how dangerous it is in a situation like this basically it happens many times but like people come in in rubber boats right these yeah. these are unseaworthy they, they they shouldn't be uh there and most of all they shouldn't have as many people as, as mm -hmm. they as they carry uh on board right Correct, so yeah. uh when one of those tubes of the rubber boat bursts you know it's it's a matter of seconds uh that takes you from 150 people on 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 a rubber boat to uh you know 50 or 100 people in in the water 
and that's that's catastrophe right because then taking one person out of the war is already physically difficult you know imagine a hundred um so you know that that can never like there's no space for 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 uh, for um, for doing anything wrong you know you need the people to stay put and come and do exactly what you say because if they move in a in a in a in weird way you know mm-hmm. because they they got they panicked or they they got scared or whatever and there goes uh, the balance the, of the, the boat one of the tubes could burst and right yeah yeah and then the, the, that's really really dangerous and I, i've seen that happen way too many times oh god what what is what is the step that you take when that happens i mean if you're you're the sole guy who's on that speedboat uh upon arrival meeting that the boat if it tips over or if one of those tubes burst as you said 50 or 100 people are thrown into the water what what is the protocol from there what do you do first individually and i of course i'm sure that everybody on board behind you is observing and at the ready yeah, I mean, what, what's like the standard, uh, the standard procedure there? Uh, of course, every situation is is a bit different, but uh, the standard procedure there is to basically throw everything that floats mm. overboard, okay. so that while you're picking people up, they have something to grab onto because uh, most most of these people don't know how to swim most of these mm-hmm. people come from landlocked countries mm-hmm. they've never seen the sea even mm-hmm. uh and they i mean they, they they're not carrying shoes let alone um let alone a life vest right, right. so so you have to be they, they have to be able to grab grab onto something uh while you're pull, pulling them one by one uh to the speedboat right and that that takes that takes a, a really long time describe uh, the process of pulling somebody out of the water because i suppose it's not as simple as it sounds no, it's it's everything, anything but simple. Basically, um, basically, uh, maybe it's a little counterintuitive, but the first thing that that we have to do is take the speedboat uh, away from the people, because what can never ever happen is that you turn the propeller of the of the speedboat towards mm-hmm. anyone, mm-hmm. and that's that's mm-hmm. really dangerous. So so there's there can never be any anybody behind you. So you have to okay. get out of the of the crowd basically mm-hmm. and then you have to approach the people one by one um and what you do is uh you approach a person you know if, if it comes to having people on the water then the person will be in panic of course mm-hmm. uh so what you do is you you grab the person you turn them around with with their back facing you basically mm-hmm. so that they, they can't grab you mm-hmm. uh because you know that then there's the risk of you getting pulled pulled inside yeah. the, into the water and right. that's that's really not not good um then you have to kind of push the person a little bit uh, uh, uh into the water so that you know Im- impulsion can then help you uh, pull the person uh you know you, you grab you grab their arms you mm-hmm. ideally you have two people doing this because you know uh, it's it's kind of quite a quite a physical challenge yeah, to do sure. this. right um so so yeah so we basically you're leaning over uh, a tube of of your speedboat and you're you're yeah oh my uh, god leaning in the water and you're grabbing the the person's arms one uh, by one you pull and then you you push and then you pull yeah one by one yeah and how long does it take if you have let's just say 50 people in the water how long does it take you to retrieve everybody i can only answer too long like there's if there's 50 people on the water and and, you, and you're the only ship there not everybody's going to make it. That's that's you know that's a fact. Have you for sure. been in a situation on mission when you went out, um, a boat capsized or a tube burst, 
and you weren't able to recover people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way too many times, yeah. Way too many times. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I've, I've, I've seen a lot of situations in which uh, we just weren't quick enough, you know. We, we didn't have enough people, enough means, enough ships, enough uh, speedboats, you know. We got there too late, we worked too, too slowly. Uh, I suppose that's why if you ask basically anyone in the search and rescue, in the search and rescue team, whether this is a solution, a little long-term solution to this problem, I, I like. I doubt that anybody's going to tell you yes. Mm-hmm. Right? We're 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 an emergency response only, mm-hmm. right? And we're trying to solve, or we're trying to to minimize the damage of a problem that's way too big for us. Yeah. Like it's it's way too big. And anybody who's done you know more than a couple of missions has seen people die, and has seen dead people, and had to recover the bodies. And you've uh, been on four of those missions with the Uventa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my, my in my, my first mission, uh, we had one of these situations. We we had very difficult uh, rescue uh, operation. Uh, basically, it was nighttime. There was there was no light whatsoever. Uh, there was uh, two meter waves, a lot of wind. It was really you know the, the worst you can imagine uh, for uh, for something like this and. Um, we we had a distress call and we found this this boat with a tube that was already burst. So when we got there, there were tens of people, there were dozens of people out, uh, out in the water, mm-hmm. and you know it's 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 a crazy like it's 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 almost impossible to describe something like this, right? Because you you get there, you almost you see almost nothing because it's because it's way too way too dark and the even with with flashlights the the humidity of the air mm-hmm. is so so high that you, that you don't even see much with the with the flashlights and you just hear the, the people right you oh hear you hear people you know screaming in panic basically dozens of people and you just have to you know as quickly as possible you have to take start taking people out of the water fortunately back then we had other organizations helping us uh there was open arms there was uh moas they're not operating anymore mm-hmm. uh and the boat refugee foundation we the, the, they are not there uh anymore either mm-hmm. and uh yet we rescued 113 people just you know by pulling uh, one by one out of the water oh, um i don't i have no idea how long that took and we were quite happy in the end. Like we we re- we rescued basically everyone that we could possibly see. Um, but so it was it was you know we we kind of kind of thought it was a success until uh, then we realized that you know by talking to the people that you know just a few seconds before we arrived there was um, uh, uh, a young girl a three year old girl who fell uh, and just. You know, right afterwards, her mom uh, uh, went after her. So, um, yeah. So, so basically, we looked and looked. Uh, uh, we we had nothing else to do. So, like, like nothing else that was that was completely urgent. So, so the because all the other people were already safely on board. So, mm-hmm. the captain told us basically, you know, look for as long as you think you should. Okay. Uh, Did you find her? And. No, no, we didn't, and and I'm you know, sorry. thinking back, it is it's quite it's quite natural that we didn't, right? In a in a situation like that, it's nighttime, the wind <laughs> right. is 
uh, incredible, the two-meter waves, you know, even if, if, we, if we were lucky enough to find anything, mm -hmm. uh, they wouldn't be alive. You know, there's, the there's just no, no way. But the human instinct, um, you know, overrides all reason, I guess, in those moments where you want to find, you want to save yeah. that life. Yeah, exactly. I, I, you need to be sure, you know, if there's, if there's a 0.1% chance to find somebody alive, then you look, you know. My God. Um, Miguel, this so, is um, yeah, that, that kind of yeah. <laughs> no, this is incredible, and I, I, I'm so curious now because you're living, you're in a situation that's so far removed from the middle of the sea, you know, like your normal life does not resemble anything like this. What is it like to live with these memories and this experience? Do you see, and and how do you live with with what you saw? Um, yeah, back then. Um, when I came back, basically, I mean, back then, all I wanted to do was search and rescue, right? I, I felt like uh, those, it, it's a strange feeling that you're there and um, mm -hmm. you feel like you're seeing every day possibly the worst things that you've ever seen mm -hmm. and still you're happier than you've ever been. <laughs> That's kind of a, it's kind of a paradox, but, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, you know, you, you feel that those problems exist whether you, whether you're there or not and you're you're actively choosing to be part of the solution mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that that may, that you know that brings you know happiness that, that, so mm -hmm. I, w I was really happy there like i and i i just wanted to to keep doing it um but by but uh, in in 2017 i did my my last mission before the ship was was seized by by the Italian police. It's mm -hmm. in Trapani and that, still. Still impounded yeah, in Trapani. Exactly. Yeah, that, that last mission, uh, I was a bit, I was a bit shaken up afterwards because it was, it was a particularly difficult uh, mission. We, in, in two weeks of operation, uh, we rescued around 3,700 people. Oh my God. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was just you know we we wouldn't sleep, we wouldn't eat, we wouldn't do anything <laughs> besides uh, besides rescue mission. How long besides did you rescue. go? What was your longest time going without sleep? I can't even tell. You know, you you can't you can't even tell days apart you from nights. You, know, you, you just lose yeah, time. You just lose track of time. Also, because you know the the scenery around you is so the same every day right. you kind of you kind of lose track of the days you don't know what happened yesterday or what what happened three days ago because you kind of you lose track because you don't know it all looks and the also same. you know sleep deprivation also helps with that, <laughs> yeah, that sure uh, i'm sure for sure and you know i remember when i was speaking to francesco he talked about just the sounds that are on board too and it's not you know, you're not on a sailboat listening to the the waves kind of lap up on the side of the boat. You're hearing the machinery of the ship. Uh, yeah. Twenty four yeah. hours a day. Yeah, yeah but in that mission, I was I was sleeping in the room that was right beside the the engine room. Oh so, God. Uh, <laughs> What's so the, the point? <laughs> yeah, the the sounds all night is is deafening sound of a of, a, of an engine running. My God. And you 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 find out quickly that as long as the the noise uh, is is constant, then you can sleep. You know, mm -hmm. but the moment it changes a little bit, like I would wake up just like that if the ship changed speed, for example. Right, because uh, that might indicate like it's it's time to act again. Yeah, as well, as well, as well. 
Uh, but back then, after that mission, I just, you know, I, I came back home and uh, I had a few other missions scheduled. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was a bit shaken up. That, that mission was uh, at a psychological level, maybe a bit too much for me. Um, Is it and, something that you are yeah. feel comfortable speaking about now? Have you been able to receive um, mental health support? Uh, yeah, I suppose my mental health support was family and friends, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, you know that's that's uh, in many situations that's as good as any other, and uh, I feel comfortable about it now. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't speak about it if I did if I didn't. What I what I felt back then when I came back home was was you know this this urge to to go home and stay home. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I felt mm -hmm. like when you when you have these uh, kind of, like for the first time in my life, I felt like like I had like I you know. There was the possibility that I that I could hurt myself on a psychological level. Mm -hmm. I, I, I spoke to a professional at some point, and they, they told me that um, that I had some indications of PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you when you feel like that, you're you're like um, what you want is to stay in a familiar place with familiar people. You know, not too much emotion, not too much adrenaline. Yeah. You just want to feel comfortable in places and people that you already know. You know. Yeah. Uh, so it felt extremely good to stay mm -hmm. home, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how long was your recovery period like before you felt like, okay, I can get out and move again and, you know, start to live my life? Like, what was that? Uh, what was I, that I time suppose frame? I can't really tell because you, you'd never really go back to the same, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, was, I, I, don't, I don't think I was, I was ever the same after, after the, the missions that I did that kind of, you know, to, to a certain extent that, that defines who you are because it's way too, it's, it's, it's way too big, you know, mm -hmm. in, in your life. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't just forget about it and move on. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, after, after a few months, I, I felt, you know, basically healthy again and and mm -hmm. uh, uh and i started feeling an urge to 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 do something of course back then uh i already had uh criminal investigation on me so so that was another that was another uh, another challenge that let's, i had to dedicate time and availability to let's get into that a little bit um obviously there's a lot to uh, explain to people about that situation um and before we do, um, I wanted to ask about some of your missions specifically. Do you remember the dates of the four missions uh, that you were out at sea on between 2016 and 2017? My first mission was September, October 2016. Mm -hmm. Second one was March 2017. Mm -hmm. And then the third and fourth were, uh, I suppose, May, May and June, yeah, May okay. and June to 2017. Back then, uh, I, I had unbelievable conversations with a lot of with with a lot of people for sure. Really? And I did write down a few names, and there's there's I mean, out of all those missions, I I, I kept in touch with with one person you only did. actually. Uh, but that's great. Uh, who, who I just yeah, still today we exchange some messages sometimes. He's in Italy. He's, in, he's this uh, Nigerian man. He's. Uh, He's a lovely person. His, his name is, is, is Bright. Bright. Um, you know, I love Nigeria. Yeah. They have the best names there, you know? Yeah, exactly. Just like there's, it's so positive. <laughs> if it's not like a super Christian name, then it's, it's always like, you know, this incredible. I remember there's a woman named Joy, another named Blessing. Yeah. A guy I met named Ability. Yeah, precious. Oh, Precious Prince. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Yeah. 
I love it. The pride yeah, is incredible. We, we, <laughs> yeah, I met a lot of people with interesting names. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll follow up with you about that too. Maybe there's something we can we can collaborate on together to share his story in some way. I'd love to even yeah. maybe even mm -hmm. do a podcast with him and you if it was if he was open to mm -hmm. it and yeah. you were open to it. We can we can see. Now, after hearing all of these really emotionally intense and even traumatic stories and memories that you've given us, um, it's. Uh, it's actually kind of an ironic segue into what the next questions are about, which are these charges that are brought against you by the uh, Italian government. Would you set up exactly um, what happened in 2017 um, to the Ioventa ship and, um, and where that case is at right now? So uh, basically what happened was that the Ioventa was forced by the uh, Italian authorities to... Uh, go back to Lampedusa, mm -hmm. and this was uh, August the second, twenty seventeen. And uh, as soon as the the ship uh, went into the port, the police boarded the ship and seized it, and told the crew that there was a criminal investigation going on. We we had no idea what they were talking about back then, mm -hmm. uh, and. They, they gave us some you know some official papers by the court saying that we like that um, uh, unknown people in the crew were suspected of uh, human trafficking uh, aiding and abetting illegal immigration and possession of firearms human trafficking and aiding illegal immigration and possessing firearms uh, yeah. It, for the latter, because that seems like the easiest to tick off, is that even true? Yeah. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, we were a humanitarian ship, not a military one. Right. Um, so, so, no, not at not all. Not to but, be conflated you know, with the Libyan Coast Guard that carries weapons, of course. Yeah, paid by Europe, by the way. Correct. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, now, what's your response when this back, happens? Sorry to interrupt you, but what is your response when you you come you come to port expecting normalcy, whatever that means when you come to port on after a life-saving mission, yeah. and you immediately have uh, authorities who are charging aboard and seizing your ship? What what are your first thoughts, and what do you guys do? What are your options at that point? Uh, um, back then, we were just confused, right? Mm -hmm. Like we had no idea that that something like this could 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 happen. You know, we we knew we had. A lot of people who didn't like us, right? The yeah. the anti-immigration rhetoric mm -hmm. was was on the rise. Correct. Uh, in, in the whole funny. Europe, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and in Italy, basically, uh, you know, the, there was a lot of uh, political parties and and a lot of uh, people with a voice in the media that were speaking out against us, uh, trying to pass on basically, um, you know, a flawed narrative that we're part of of the of the of, of human trafficking and that you know these people wouldn't be there if if, if we couldn't if, if the if the rescue ships weren't there uh which which are which are you know uh, absolutely it's, it's laughable uh, ridiculous argument it, right? it's, it's totally it's, laughable it's, it's like, as if human movement would cease if yeah, the jugendrat yeah. organization of how many people by the yeah. way was not there i mean the whole history of the world is is movement of people and the idea that your ship, your tiny ship that holds how many, a hundred plus people on board? Yeah, 
would mm-hmm. be the 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 hinge for this for yeah, this issue. Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. Remarkable. It's, and I mean, it's like it's basically as logical as saying that if you if you didn't have ambulance, people would stop getting sick. You know, <laughs> right. uh, it's it's as logical as that. Right. Or you do you know if you, if you stop uh, having firefighters, then right. people's houses won't burn down. You know. If you'd um, stop talking about so racism, racism would go away. If you'd stop talking about feminism, there would be no problems. With, <laughs> yeah, basically. You know, right. Basically. Yeah. Why are you putting such light those, on it? All of those. <laughs> right. Um, so, so we felt, we felt. I mean, we we knew there was a lot of there there was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, political discourse that was aimed at at destroying the the reputation of these NGOs, but we never really expected that something, uh, you know, on a legal level right. that that public ministry and and the courts could could be brought to doing something as as, as unfair as this right right and, um of course we didn't know what was what was going to happen in the in the following years but really what what uh what we saw what what that was 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 uh a really significant moment in the sense that we we were the first ship to get uh seized we were the first mm-hmm. ngo uh that performs uh, search and rescue missions in the central mediterranean to get uh, to get criminalized basically yeah. but all of the every single other ngo had legal problems uh from that moment on okay. we were just the first so we, you know you can um you can you can really see a connection between uh all of these cases mm-hmm. uh, all of the ngos had had to had to uh, you know, at least be investigated for for aiding and abetting illegal immigration, and none of them have been convicted yet. You know, and let's talk Lots about of what that were just dropped. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and when those charges are levied against you, that there's evidence of some encounters with traffickers, for example, this is something that that keeps coming up. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, unpack that for us. Help us understand how, you, or help us understand what a mission, how the mission actually operates what those procedures are that a prosecutor could step in and and misinterpret or spin those actions as trafficking it's it's really like i mean it was it was as unbelievable to us as it is to you at this moment right so uh we we could we couldn't even think how how it could be interpreted as 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 something like that it's it's even today i think you know the absurdity of this whole of this whole case points in one direction only which is that this case is, is politically motivated right yeah. and what's going to happen in court is that these people will be will be uh, declared innocent mm-hmm. uh because honestly like we've seen we've seen a part of the of the f- of the prosecutor's files of the of what he considers evidence and it's it's ridiculous is like it? it's really um <laughs> you know like to give you a few like a couple of examples maybe there Please. were there were uh, situations in which they, uh, you know, they, they they took a picture of of uh, crew members of the Uventa uh, towing uh, an empty boat that had been that had just been rescued, mm-hmm. and they said, you know, the the, the they, they post they they put that picture in the files, and then they said, and these these uh, crew members are towing the boats back to Libya so <laughs> that they can be reused uh, by the traffickers, and then. Along comes um, uh, an, an academic group uh, right. in the in the UK that did a, an independent investigation on the, on these allegations, uh-huh. and with forensic methods, uh, they they work on forensic oceanography. So they they, they study uh, 
events that happened at sea, basically. Incredible. And they proved uh, through the direction of, of the waves and the wind that we were actually moving northwards, you know? The, the, the That's amazing. Couldn't possibly be going in the direction of Libya. And still, this is what they accuse us of, you That's know? That's amazing. This, but yes, and, and also, uh, but for that too, like the the hauling of the boat after people are rescued from it, I mean, this is there's also a protocol for that. Like you don't just leave. I mean, or I I don't know actually. What is the what is the procedure? Why would the Oventa be pulling that boat back with it? Yeah. So uh, there was no common procedure uh, uh, among all of the NGOs and and uh, navy ships mm-hmm. back then. What happened? Like different NGOs or different ships had different methods. Uh, mostly, we agreed on uh whenever possible to destroy those boats okay so and we've all seen pictures uh, of those boats on fire uh the rubber boats were often thrown on fire so they couldn't drag them back yeah yeah so uh, whenever we could we 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 sank the boats Mm. uh so they couldn't be reused okay uh so that was that was standard uh like a standard procedure within within our, our crew then of course there were there were situations in which you know uh, sinking a boat like that takes takes some time, and if there's a boat sinking right next to you, you're not going to lose time or crew members sinking another sinking a, a, an empty boat, right? Right. So, the, 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 of course, there were situations in which in which we we just couldn't um, couldn't we did we didn't have time, you know, right, to, yeah. to 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 sink the boats because there were just more important things to do uh, at like that moment to tend but, to the human but, lives uh, that you had in front of you. But, yeah, exactly. For example. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. For example. <laughs> I've actually hadn't thought much about just the procedure of sinking the boat and you know all of these things take time and I think the thing that you've come back to again and again and Francesco too in our conversations is just time is of the essence and um, there is no second to waste and um, and 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 to sink a boat again yeah in, in this example to sink a boat I mean this is precious time that you need to you know devote to the people who have already been uh, through so much distress um, and so let's talk about you now you yourself had charges that were levied against you um, yeah. will you talk about that when that happened and what those charges were yeah, so, so basically our ship ship was seized and we were notified that there was this investigation back in 2017. And we tried everything we could to, to get the ship back back at sea, right? Because mm-hmm. we knew that, you know, uh, even with the ships that we had, uh, we were very far from enough. And, uh, you know, to think that a fully equipped ship was being held in port for reasons that we couldn't possibly understand was 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 just you know outrageous uh but uh soon we found that it was it was just impossible to to get the ship back until the investigation was over so we just had to uh to wait and almost a year later uh myself and and nine uh friends of mine started getting letters at home um notifying us that we were you know personally officially under investigation uh this time for uh aiding and abetting illegal immigration only so they forgot about the firearms naturally and the human trafficking okay um this was june 2018 okay okay and 
uh, yeah, from then on, like we built, we built a, a group, a collective, uh, with the goal of of, um, of 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 telling the story, basically, of of gathering support around us mm-hmm. with the you know with with the goal of of, of helping to you know to stop the criminalization of this of of, uh, of humanitarian work. Right. Sure. That's, that was. I mean, what, what is we figured we could do. No, sorry, there's a delay. I'm interrupting you a bit, but there's also this delay in the phone that makes it tricky yeah. sometimes to keep the, the conversation at a pace. But I wanted to know, what is the, what's the first step when, you, when this happens? Like, did Jugendrettet have um, resources, legal support for you ready that, um, that was, you know, was going to help you through this? Or did you have to find that, you know, your own legal support services on your own? There were, um, of course, there were, there were resources that the organization had to help us. But at some point, we figured, um, you know, for for many reasons that it's not wor- that is that are not worth getting into uh, very deeply. Uh, we felt like we'd be safer if we found our own uh, our own way away from this uh, from from the organization itself. We felt like we should create our own group, our own collective, our own identity, and and get uh, our own lawyers. Then fundraise for for this and to pay for the for the legal costs and and and, and that's what we did. Uh, basically, we got to organize the ten of us. I'm a little curious, I, and, and and we can also follow that um, on social. There's that's what the event to ten um, is, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So that's on. You guys are on Instagram. Um, are you elsewhere? Yeah, Let's yeah. put a shout out for it so everybody can follow you along and support. Yeah, yeah, we're we're on social media. Uh, I mean, uh, we basically we started back then in twenty eighteen. We started creating this 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 campaign to to inform people to not not because we thought that our story is unique, but quite the contrary. We we thought that our our story kind of tells. It's, it kind of uh, describes quite well what's happening in the Mediterranean at the moment, right? Because there's so many NGOs. We were just the first, right? There's mm-hmm. so many NGOs, so many, so many humanitarian workers that are facing these preposterous allegations, these accusations of of, of uh, uh, collusion with with smugglers, with traffickers, mm-hmm. uh, and all that. And th- you know, it's it's. Uh, it kind of illustrates a very important point about the the humanitarian crisis in the Mediterranean, which is that it's way more than, than humanitarian in the mm-hmm. sense that it's not like a natural catastrophe, that, that it's not like it's a natural catastrophe happening in the Mediterranean that's killing a lot of people and Europe just just chooses to, to not do anything. It's right. way worse than that. It's, it's Europe, so the European states, the European leaders, actively working towards making this cross uh, riskier, right? Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's European leaders working, you know, actively and knowingly towards uh, having more deaths at sea. And this is the only possible reason for, for the numbers that we see nowadays, right? I mean, just in 2020, 10 people per week on average died in the central Mediterranean. And we don't think you know, about that because 10 people a week and it's and something we don't think about because 2020 of course being the year that the that the health crisis um, kicked up we think oh well there were fewer arrivals and you know there were when you look at you know previous years. Uh, but yeah this that's 10 people a week. Yeah. Yeah, 
a week. You know, it's 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 and those, crazy. And, and and those numbers now. And, I mean, and I'm not even talking about all of the thousands of people who were uh, who were uh, brought, illegally brought uh, back to Libya. Right. right? Exactly. There's, there's in international law. There's this clause of this this principle of non-refoulement mm-hmm. that basically says that uh, a person can never be taken back to a country where they will face, you know, via the risk of violence, prosecution, whatever. So mm-hmm. Libya is a country in uh, that's going through a civil war since 2011. Mm-hmm. And what's happening at the moment in the central Mediterranean is very, very much this. The people come from Libya fleeing violence, uh, you know, all kinds Total of violations human rights. Of human abuses. rights. Yeah. Slavery they, they, sometimes even. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, it's it's the everything, basically. They, they get on, on unseaworthy boats to try and flee that, that danger. Um, they, they, they go out to sea. They get uh, intercepted by, by this, this armed militia that the, the, the European Union calls the Libyan Coast Guard. That's, right. and that's paid by the European Union very openly. Trained uh, and financed, those, uh, minimally yeah, trained they're, they're, and financed wholly. Yeah, yeah, and very heavily armed and very responsible. Um, Who have also executed violence, uh, enacted violence against people, and very well documented, too. There's video images of people being beaten, shot at, etc., yeah, exactly, and it's it's also very well documented that these people these ver- these are the very same people who are uh, colluding with traffickers or trafficking them or or themselves trafficking people, you know. Mm-hmm. So basically, they're they're profiting from uh, people on the move, but they're also profiting to stop people from moving. Mm-hmm. So so they they uh, intercept these boats in international waters and they bring them back to Libya. This is a clear violation of international law, and it's openly paid, openly financed, funded by by the by the European Union, basically. And this, so you is, can, this is what's happening at the moment. Yeah, and you can see why there's so much pressure on Europe in European politics to actually uh, find a ceasefire, find an agreement in Libya so that country can be deemed now a safe place to return to because if it's stable and safe, uh, even if, you know, on paper, maybe not on the ground, maybe not in reality, but on paper, uh, that mm-hmm. governments will recognize, then that issue doesn't stand anymore. So the charges against you, um, how long did that take for you to, what did you have to go through? Um, and, uh, you know, we don't have to get too deep into the, you know, the throes of that, but uh, just to acknowledge for the listeners that you're an individual person um, who was a college student at the time, or were you were you an active college student, or had you graduated? No, it's, uh, yeah, but back then I, I finished my, my okay. master's, and at the moment, like, with you know after not being able to to go back to sea i started doing a, a phd here in, in in portugal got it so you're ostensibly a young student who goes out to sea to save lives does save lives witnesses great trauma in in the moment of doing that and uh, you come back and you find yourself uh <laughs> facing charges personal charges that could affect the rest of your life um, how has this affected your life, and um, and when were those charges finally dropped against you, and why? So, I mean, this in the moment when you get uh, a letter in your mailbox saying that you're now officially under investigation by 
the Italian public ministry for uh, a crime that could lead to up to 20 years in prison, which is what this could lead to. Um, I mean, you you have <laughs> it's it's kind of you feel kind of afraid. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's uh, you don't know what's going on. Like we we don't we weren't expecting any of any of any, any of this to happen, and and suddenly they're they're starting to they, you know they 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 come to you and say that there is you know technically the possibility of you going to jail for 20 years. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, that that's scary. Um, then. You know, quite quickly, talking to other people involved, you realize that this is political only, mm -hmm. and and that you know, it, we we got into this. We, we we didn't know exactly what could happen, but we knew it was a political issue, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know, <laughs> throughout history, a lot of people get get um, uh, you know get get convicted and get get you know, have problems in their life, including legal prosecution, uh, for, for doing uh, political work. Mm -hmm. And at some point you realize that um, this is also, a, you know, defending yourself now mm -hmm. is uh, your political intervention, you know. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that is, you know, defending yourself now means also uh, uh, contributing towards a stop of the criminalization of, of, of humanitarian help. Mm -hmm. right that's so uh, at, at some point i started to look at this as as um you know my job from now on you know uh, to mm -hmm. to speak out to to use this story to use all the power that that that, that this gives me because uh you know this is so absurd that it puts me in a position in which i have a voice right. uh it, it puts me in a position where I can tell the story and gather people around this cause and yeah. inform people of, of all of uh, uh, all of what are um, all of what the, the European states are doing, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, to, to kind of ignite the, that uh, that uh, that indignation, that outrage in civil society, so that uh, that that could, in the long run, contribute towards uh, you know positive change. So. Yeah. Uh, at some point, I, I just figured this is this is what I'm gonna do from now on, and, and um, started facing it as as part of part of my life, really. You know. That's wonderful. Uh, I think that's what, yeah. so. Just to say, I think that's such a, and that's I think the best case scenario for a person to do to to take the circumstances, the things that have happened, and actually find the find the positive path using them. So, thank you for doing that. Um, because I know it also really matters right now because although the charges for you have been dropped, which you can tell us about shortly, I know this happened just yeah. last week, um, I want to make sure we also uh, devote a couple moments, a few uh, words to the people who have not yet been cleared and um, find out how we can yeah. support them. Yeah, but basically what happened was that uh, for say at, for, for three years i was officially in, mm -hmm. under investigation myself and nine other nine uh, nine, nine friends of mine mm -hmm. um and and we, yeah we did everything that we could to, to gather the support that we needed not only financial uh, to pay for a for a, a legal case but also uh, at an institutional level at a popular level you know uh, Mm -hmm. basically telling people the story gathers 
people around you so that it's easier to fight the uh, this 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 attack basically mm-hmm. and then what happened was that uh last week just just last week um the investigation was finally closed so congratulations almost almost three years after we got wow. notified that we're that we were personally under investigation almost four years after the ship was seized wow. so it's four years that that the ship couldn't rescue anyone right after oh only God. one year of operation my god um, and those charges yeah, were yeah, dropped and, why what was the reasoning what did they say um th- there's there's no th- like there's no uh um, there's no explanation. Basically, the prosecutor who was le- who was leading the investigation doesn't have to explain anything. That he just says he just says, okay, these are the people I want to take to court, and he just doesn't um, explain anything else. I, I you know, if this w- if this were a normal case, I would trust that the the prosecutor's files or or the or the the um, the, the trial would would explain to us why some of us are are, are uh, accused and, uh, and some of us are not. But I, I don't expect that anymore from from a case like this so, so it's it's really I, it, arbitrary you know, your dismissal versus the others yeah it seems it seems to me it seems completely arbitrary because we know the the, the particular situations the particular days in which they say that we did something wrong mm-hmm. and and i was there you know i yeah. did it i show up in the pictures i i uh I'm, I'm on the videos, I'm on the pictures, I'm, I'm doing those things with, along with my, my comrades, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we're doing that work and we, we're, we're proud of that work. Uh, so if they're guilty, why, why am I not, you know, why am not, why am I not there along with them? It, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense right. whatsoever. Logic um, stands that if, if, if you're clear, then everybody else ought to be too. Yeah. 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 So I, I just think, you know, on a very personal level, I was happy, I was relieved, mm-hmm. but I am very well aware that the world didn't get any better with me being cleared, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the case is still going forward. People are accused, people will have to stand trial for, you know, five to ten years at least. Um, so, you know, criminalization goes on. Uh, we still live in a place whose authorities do this kind of thing you know mm-hmm. so the so the the prospect is a bit a, a bit grim at the moment yeah. but uh well um, let's yeah, that's what we have let's keep going together then yeah i, I guess the, the bottom line is that the you know the, the problem is still very much there nothing was solved and many things actually uh changed for the worse so um I, I feel like back in 2016 2015 this topic was high on the on the on the political agenda and, and on the media so everybody talked about it and now only when something major happens uh does this get this any attention like come back, yeah. and, and, and what i feel is that people get the impression that the problem is solved really right. you know and, and it's really bad when, when, you know, society forgets about the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are still suffering, still dying at the borders, you know, and for, for political reasons, not for, for a, you know, a storm, a hurricane or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. My, my message is just that. Let's, let's not forget about those people. The fight goes on and we, there's so much to be done, so much to change. 
Miguel, thank you so much. And on behalf of all the people who uh, I write about too, uh, I'm sure that um, if not you, others around you have saved their lives and they thank you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Okay. Thank you for listening to Open Encounters from Migrants of the Mediterranean. You can follow Migrants of the Mediterranean on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like Open Encounters, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. Open Encounters is produced, written, and edited by me, Pamela Kirpius. Editorial and outreach by Nick O'Connell. Music by Giovanni Escalera. To read every story and to donate to humanitarian storytelling, go to migrantsofthemed.com. That's migrantsofthemed.com.